Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. This talk was given by Subdeacon Stephen Brannan to a local ecumenical Christian gathering for a series of Lenten reflections. Father Colin asked me to give a bit of a reflection on uh, what what the lockdown time and what the post-lockdown time has done and meant for for the church. And um, I started thinking about sort of how important it is to 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 come out and assemble as a people and to worship. And uh, that got me thinking about the Exodus, and especially <laughs> given that, uh, you know, Easter is upon us now. This is our, uh, our Pascha, you know, this is the Passover. Um, it's in English, you know, we've got this uh, stubborn habit of, of keeping our Anglo-Saxon words for things. And so we say Easter, um, kind of like, you know, we still commemorate the gods to and Woden and uh, Frigga, you know, and Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, Thor, and Thursday. We don't commemorate them, but there are their names. Because... Uh, uh, origins. Yeah, so our, our uh, Germanic language likes to hold on to its roots. So um, Easter has uh, an association with springtime going back um, over millennia. And so since Easter is always in the springtime, we've kept this springtime word for it. But basically every other Christian community in the world um, has taken their name for Easter from the, um, well, through Latin, but ultimately from the old Greek Pascha, which itself was um, from the Hebrew Pesach, meaning Passover. And so the name for Easter um, among anyone from a Latin derivated language, the, you know, Spanish, Italian, uh, Romanians, uh, Portuguese, etc., and anyone coming from sort of a Greek Orthodox uh, tradition, so in, in Slavic countries and Greece, obviously, um, they've all got their word for Easter means Passover, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so um, we miss that in English sometimes because of, of our of our word, but that's what that's what we're doing when when Easter is upon us. We're actually commemorating um, Passover. I hope you'll excuse me. I don't mean this to be overly formal, but I talk better with notes, so I did take some some notes about what I wanted to um, talk about regarding that. Um, but since Christian Passover is Easter, Easter is our Christian Passover feast, um, the, the old Hebrew Passover feast was redefined and fulfilled in Christ's death and resurrection. And so Jesus was, of course, crucified in the Passover week in Jerusalem, not on accident or by coincidence. This was intentionally timed by Jesus. He was going up to Jerusalem uh, in the context of Passover, knowing that his death and resurrection was to occur. He was trying to prepare his disciples, but they were a little thick-headed and didn't (laughs) understand what he was talking about. But from the foundation of the world, this was God's timing. He meant to do this. So, um, you know, why? We we talk about Christ as our Passover lamb, but what does that mean? Um, St. John, in his apocalyptic vision, saw Christ as the lamb who who was slain, yet ruling over heaven and earth. And so we have uh, a slain lamb now ruling over all of creation. And this lamb intentionally is a Passover image. So what is that about? So I think it's because the Passover precisely is a story of salvation. So our salvation, Jesus' salvation, comes from this foundational salvation story in the Old Testament. 
at the time of the Exodus, the Hebrews had been living in Egypt under the pharaohs for 430 years. Um, and by the time we get to the beginning of the story, the pharaohs had forgotten Joseph from way back centuries ago. He, they had forgotten what he did for the land and his descendants, uh, the descendants of his father, Israel, had grown and become a large distinct people group within, within the uh, land of Egypt, right on, on Pharaoh's doorstep. <laughs> now, at the time of the Exodus, what it meant to be Pharaoh essentially was to be thought of as a god on earth. The Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was the representative or almost the avatar of one or several of the Egyptian gods. And so, you know, when you have that understanding of yourself, you don't suffer threats to your authority or your rulership, either imagined or real, lightly. And so when he recognized that this group of people, these foreign uh, Semitic people who were distinct from the other Egyptians, were becoming large and well-to-do and prospering, he perceived them as a threat. And so he decided to subdue them and turn them all into slaves, treat them harshly, and eventually to cut off their growth by murdering the little baby boys um, being born to to the Hebrews. And so at this point, the wickedness of Egypt was ripe for demonstrating God's power in response to it. So God raised up Moses. He told him his name, I am, um, and told him to go tell both the Hebrews and the Egyptians that the God whose name I am, so when uh, he goes to tell him, he says, the God, he who is, Yahweh in Hebrew, um, that's the, the name, it comes from the verb essentially meaning he is, or he who is being, or something like that. It's difficult to translate. So he goes and tells the people, the Hebrews, hey, our God from way back in the day, his name is he is, Yahweh, he uh, wants us to come out of the land and sacrifice to him. And he goes and tells Pharaoh the same thing. Um, let my people go out of the land into the wilderness to make a sacrifice to me. Now, what's interesting is uh, Moses didn't go tell Pharaoh, God wants, our God wants our people to be free. He just says, I want you to let them go so that they can sacrifice to me in the wilderness. Um, so presumably so that they would then come back into the land. That was, the deal was never, I want you just to cut them loose. I just want them to be able to come out and make a sacrifice to me. And Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh? I don't know this name. It's not a God that I'm a representative of. This is my land. You are wasting my time and the time of the people. And because, you know, we've wasted a day's work now and everyone's waiting on my verdict, they haven't been working. So um, take away their straw and make them make the same amount of bricks. I'm going to treat them even more harshly. So at the very beginning here, we see Pharaoh's stubbornness and obstinacy. So um, this is when God begins his signs. He starts striking the land in various ways to show his strength um, and to prove how obstinate Pharaoh would yet become. So Pharaoh, um, since Pharaoh was murdering the Hebrew babies in the Nile by throwing them into the Nile, God turns the Nile into blood. He begins breaking down the natural order of Egypt, uh, which was supposedly held together by Egypt's gods, right? Well, he starts breaking down Egypt's order, blurring the distinction between the water and the land, a very, very primary foundational order distinction in the ancient world. You want to know the 
where the land ends and the water begins because water can mean life if it's controlled, but it can also mean death. And when the line starts blurring, bad things happen. And so God blurs the line with these amphibious creatures, a a bunch of frogs start swarming the land. And so he breaks down this distinction. He starts uh, making the dust of the earth the very ground, which, you know, you want to be able to control so that you can grow food and everything, he makes gnats come out, mm. out of it. They broke down the order of the animals by killing off livestock. Um, he broke down the order of the integrity of the human body by sending boils on the people. The order of the heavens uh, with hailstorms. He wrecked the economic order with locusts that ate up all the crops and the stores. And the order of the very day itself by sending an impenetrable darkness for three days. And so Pharaoh's court magicians, though they initially thought they could uh, reproduce Moses' signs, and they did a couple of them with their secret acts, uh, quickly realized that this was divine power. We can't, we can't compete with this anymore. So Pharaoh's court magicians, his gods are all coming up short. <laughs> He's realizing that he and his gods have been helpless through all these punishments, and still he was obstinate. And so finally, God warns him, okay, I'm going to do one final strike on the land. And by the way, all these, none of these were surprises. God was warning them, tomorrow this is going to happen, all right? A week later, this is going to happen. And Pharaoh, <laughs> stubborn the whole time. So finally, God warns them, this is what I'm going to do now. The firstborn of everything in the land, from your own family down to the lowliest servant and even the cattle, I'm going to kill the firstborn. And so only one thing that could... Uh, prevent this. God gives the Hebrews these instructions. They had to kill an innocent lamb and they had to spread the blood on the door of their house. Then death would pass over that house and spare them. And so all these mighty acts of God, um, having mercy on the Hebrews, a lot of these uh, strikes, he distinguished the, the Hebrew people, like in the land of Goshen, the little area where the Hebrews dwelt, they, they didn't have the darkness. They didn't have the frogs. They, you know, they, and the, the Egyptians did. So God was showing, I am differentiating. I am having mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'm hardening whom I will harden, as St. Paul says when he was commenting on this. But, I mean, and this is, how, was it Pharaoh's fault if God hardened his heart? What does this mean, God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh had made up his mind. Pharaoh was hardening his own heart. And what God did was withdraw any grace to help Pharaoh change. He let Pharaoh dig in to his own position through his own obstinacy. And so by God hardening his heart, all that means is God allowed Pharaoh to be Pharaoh, to do what he was going to be doing. And so ultimately, he showed Pharaoh the bounds of his own obstinacy, stubbornness, and pride. Um, And then when in near despair, because Yahweh proved his power over him and his pretensions, yet finally refused to submit, he let the people go and then changed his mind, Uh obstinate to the end. And he chased the Hebrews after he let them go. And Pharaoh met his end under the waters, just as he intended for the little Hebrew baby boys Mm -hmm. to meet there and there. So... Full, full circle. Pharaoh's plan finally backfires spectacularly on him. And so Yahweh, a God whose name had been unknown and unimportant to Egypt, the land of slavery and death, now was known as the liberator of the oppressed, the savior of the needy and the dying. And over and over again throughout the narrative, God is telling Moses, I'm doing this so that they will know that I am Yahweh. He's making a name for himself. People didn't know Yahweh's name. Now, 
He's making a name. He's building a reputation for himself, and he's staking his name and reputation on this story, on this, on what he's doing for the people. And so Yahweh has made himself known now uh, through the dismantling of Egypt's order and the disempowering of its gods, through the liberation of its people, by bringing them out of slavery. And then when he parts the waters that they can go through them, in reality, what he's doing is bringing them right through what was certain death so that they would uh, emerge on the other side whole. Because that's what, that's what the waters were. Again, in that ancient mindset, the waters are death. And so when Yahweh parts the waters, the, I mean, the people are there facing death on one side and a pursuing Pharaoh on the other. And so God brings them through death and they emerge whole on the other side. And so throughout the rest of the Old Testament, Exodus is the primary image of the character and purpose of Yahweh. Even as the Hebrews went into the promised land, they conquered it. Uh, they failed to get rid of all the gods there. Then they begged for a king to be like all the other nations, only for that kingdom to split in two. And then both of those uh, split up kingdoms eventually fell apart because of their own sin. They all went into exile. And through all of that, what the prophets were doing when they were calling Israel to repent of their sins was bringing their mind back to the story of the Exodus. This was their founding story. This is what their God is all about. So the Exodus, the Passover, is that's why this is the primary, to this day, of observant Orthodox uh, Jews. The Passover is their primary um, festival. It's the thing that still defines them and, and always had. And so centuries later, when Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem making preparations to celebrate the Passover, Jesus gives his own body for food instead of a lamb's. He gives his own blood as a new covering instead of a lamb's. He, as the incarnate Yahweh, because Yahweh knows how important it is for us to be incarnated in order to save us. He becomes incarnated like us. He doesn't save us from afar. He comes among us. So as the incarnate Yahweh, he recapitulates our entire human condition and brings our human nature, our flesh and our blood, through death and out the other side, whole, resurrected, recreated. And so that's why for Christians, Pascha is now our primary feast. This is our primary celebration on the Christian calendar, because Yahweh has shown himself not only as the God who liberates one people among all of the world, but the God who becomes all people. He takes all people into himself when he takes on flesh and blood. He recapitulates humanity, and he saves us all. Now, not just through the waters, but through actual death, death itself. This is why we celebrate Passover now as Pascha, as Easter, and the sacrifice that we're called now to come out of the land to make is a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving uh, so that we can be joined with Christ's own self-sacrifice and partake of his life. Uh, the death may ultimately pass over us, or rather that we can pass through death with Christ and be resurrected with him. Now, for the first time in any of our lifetimes, I believe, we experienced a broad communal lockdown, uh, keeping us from going to work, from seeing family and friends, and what we at Church of the Advent really felt was keeping us from coming together and offering that sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. We, like the Hebrews, weren't able to come out and make sacrifice. Um, 
And now that that official lockdown is over, we still have a multitude, however, <laughs> of <laughs> false gods and little pharaohs mm-hmm. trying to bar our way um, from coming to make sacrifice, whether it's uh, just societal pressures, uh, sports, work, <laughs> general busyness in our schedules, or just the sheer inertia of the habit of not coming. A lot of people just stopped going to church in lockdown and never came back. <laughs> but Yahweh, he who is, the very source of existence in life is a liberator. And if we pray for ourselves and for our neighbors earnestly, crying out because we recognize any barriers between us and the encounter of the living God as the evils that they are, God will hear our cries as he heard the cries of the Hebrews. And we don't know what plans he has for us. We don't know in what ways he will answer these cries, uh, just as the Hebrews didn't know what Yahweh's plan was going to look like in the middle of it. Moses didn't know the whole plan. He was doing what God told him to step by step. He had no idea what the next strike on Egypt was going to be. The people didn't know that the, the last one was going to be this, uh, this destroyer coming over the whole land. They didn't know until God gave them the instructions how it was going to work for them to uh, put blood on their doorpost. They didn't know that that was going to be the you know proverbial straw that broke the camel's back and they were going to be let loose. They also didn't know that then they were going to be pursued and they didn't know that the waters were going to be parted. All they could do was follow each step of the way. And that's all that we can do as well. Pray, trust God, follow each um, commandment that we are given, follow in the, in the ways of living that um, the scriptures and especially our Lord himself have, uh, has given us. And we will find at the end of all things that God has been protecting us, that he has honored and heard our prayers since the foundation of the world, because God sees all history at once, right? Past, present, and future. And our prayers have been taken into account from before creation. And so if we simply trust him, do what he says, go where he says, live according to his ways, then we will find that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor any of the gods of Egypt, nor things present or things to come, not height, nor depth, nor any other thing in all of creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.